It looks like we'll make it to the end of the material. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay, passage 23. You remember earlier on we had the passage about the, the fortress with the gatekeeper. This is from the same sutta, and this, this is the royal fortress, has large stores of grass, timber, and water for the delight, convenience, and comfort of those within, and to ward off those without. In the same way, the disciple of the noble ones, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities, and remains in the first jhana for his own delight, convenient, and comfort, and to it light unbinding. Un, unbinding. Okay. And then the second jhana is like having large stores of rice and barley. Third jhana is ha like having large stores of sesame, green gram, and other beans. And the fourth jhana here is where it gets really good. You have ghee, fresh butter, oil, <laughs> honey, molasses, and salt. Okay. So basically, the jhanas here are nourishment for the mind on the path. It's what strengthens you. Mindfulness is what keeps in mind the fact the fact that you want to develop skillful mental qualities and abandon unskillful mental qualities. And unless you have the sense of ease and well-being that comes from the jhana, it's going to be hard to do that, to keep it up. Because you can tell yourself, okay, in the long run, it's going to be good for me to develop skillful qualities, but if I'm not getting some immediate pleasure right now, you know, there, it's very easy to, to drop off the path. And so one of the purposes of jhana, of practicing jhana, is to develop that sense of ease and well-being that nourishes you on the path, keeps you going. Whereas John Fuhr once said, if you don't have the rapture that comes from concentration, it's like a, a machine that doesn't have any lubrication. It, it gets dry and it begins to seize up. This is reflected in passage 24. So even though a disciple of the noble ones has clearly seen with right discernment as it has come to be that sensuality is of much stress, much despair, and greater drawbacks, still, if he or she has not attained a rapture and pleasure apart from sensuality, apart from unskillful mental qualities, or something more peaceful than that, you can be tempted by sensuality. But when you have clearly seen with right discernment as has come to be that sensuality is much stress, much despair, and greater drawbacks, and you have attained a rapture and pleasure apart from sensuality, apart from unskillful mental qualities, or something more peaceful than that, you cannot be tempted by sensuality. So you need that pleasure in order to pry yourself off away from other lower pleasures. The other advantage of having jhana is that it helps you to develop insight. This passage 25. Develop concentration monks. The concentrated monk discerns things as they have come to be. What does he discern as they've come to be? The origination and disappearance of form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness. You can see the five aggregates clearly from the perspective of the jhana. Because the jhana, if it's done properly, has to attain, includes even some insight. You, you cannot attain jhana without insight. This passage here is at 26. If you would wish, may I attain whenever I want, without strain, without difficulty, the four jhanas that are heightened mental states, pleasant abidings in the here and now, then you should be one who brings the precepts to perfection, who is committed to inner tranquility of awareness, who does not neglect jhana, who is endowed with insight. Underline that line. Endowed with insight. That's what the word there, in, actually in Pali, is vipassana. And who frequents empty dwellings. In other words, you spend time alone. 
So jhana actually is not just a forcing of the mind to be still, but if it's right concentration, it's going to contain an element of insight, an element of right view. Now the next series of passages here is, is about using concentration as a basis for gaining insight. Because once you've attained internal tranquility of awareness, but not insight into phenomena through heightened discernment, you should approach an individual who has attained insight into phenomena through heightened discernment and ask this person, how should fabrications be regarded? How should they be investigated? How should they be seen with insight? Okay, these are the questions that turn the practice into an insight practice. Okay. These are the questions. First, you look at things in terms of their being fabricated. And then you invest, investigate those fabrications. And we'll see later on what investigation means. So it should come to insight. Now, there are several different ways that you can see the process of fabrication in the practice of right concentration itself. This passage 28 shows. The Buddha here is talking to a monk. I've taught the step-by-step -step stilling of fabrications. When one has attained the first jhana, speech has been stilled. When one has attained second jhana, directed thoughts and evaluations, i.e. verbal fabrications, have been stilled. When one has attained the third jhana, rapture has been stilled. When one has attained the fourth jhana, in and out breaths or bodily fabrications have been stilled. So you, one way of seeing this is you go from one level of jhana to another. You begin to see these, these processes get stilled. And as he goes through the different stages of the formless jhanas, he, you basically let go of a particular perception. And until finally, when you get to the cessation of perception and feeling, the perceptions and feelings, i.e. mental fabrications, have been stilled. So this is one way to sensitize yourself to the process of fabrication as it goes on in the mind, is to move the mind through the different jhanas, to see, okay, what did you let go of as you went to a deeper stage? And you begin to notice, okay, oh, at that point, the breath really did stop. Internal speech, internal dialogue really did stop. The other way of gaining insight into fabrications is to look at each state of concentration in and of itself while you're in it. Okay? And how you do this is shown in passages 29 through 31. Passages 29, this, now what monks is five-factored right, noble right concentration. There's a case where a monk enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. And then the fifth factor is the interesting one here. The monk has his theme of reflection, well in hand, well attended to, well considered, well tuned, well penetrated by means of discernment. And the analogy here is just as if one person were to reflect on another, or a standing person were to reflect on a sitting person, or a sitting person were to reflect on a person lying down. Even so, the monk has his theme of reflection well in hand well attended to, etc. Essentially what this is talking about is that it's possible once you've been in a state of jhanas to pull out slightly and to observe the mind in that state. If you pull out too far, you destroy the state, but you pull out just a little bit. And John Fu would talk about lifting the mind above its object. And in the analogy, okay, the person sitting can look at the person lying down. You can actually observe what's going on in the mind in the state of jhana. So you can see what's going on, what's the, what are the factors, what are the activities involved. And here's an extreme case with Sariputta in passage number 30. 
There's the case when Sarabhuta, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities, entered and remained in the first jhana. Whatever qualities there are in the first jhana, directed thought, evaluation, rapture, pleasure, singleness of mind, contact, feeling, perception, intention, consciousness or intent, desire, decision, persistence, mindfulness, equanimity and attention, he ferreted them out one after another. Known to him they arose, known to him they remained, known to him they subsided. He discerns, so this is how these qualities, not having been, come into play. Having been, they vanish. In a similar way with all the other states up through the dimension of nothingness. Now it turns out for the state of neither perception or non-perception or the cessation of feeling, you cannot do this kind of analysis while you're in the state. In, in passage 31, talks about another way of analyzing the state of the jhana that you're in. Since I tell you the ending of the effluence depends on the first jhana, second jhana, all the way up to the dimension of neither non-perception, perception and non-perception. Now why dimension is italicized there, I don't know. Okay, I tell you, the ending of the effluence depends on the first jhana. Thus it has been said, in reference to what was it said? Suppose that an archer or archer's apprentice were to practice on a straw man or mound of clay, so that after a while he would become able to shoot long distances, to fire accurate shots in rapid succession, and to pierce great masses. In other words, you become an accomplished archer. In the same way, you become an archer, accomplished meditator. In this case, where monk enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. And then, okay, this is when you start pulling out to look at what's there. Then you regard whatever phenomena there are connected with form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. And this is how, this is how these fabrications should be investigated. You look at them as being inconstant, you see them as being stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a disintegration, a void, or, or an emptiness, and not self. So you turn your mind away from those phenomena, and having done so, you incline the mind to the property of deathlessness. This is peace, this is the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, and unbinding. Because there's three stages that are described here. One, you get into the jhana. Two, you start analyzing it in terms of the five aggregates and applying these perceptions, anything from inconstant down to not self. And then once you've developed a sense of dispassion for that state of jhana, that would induce you to incline your mind to the deathless. Okay, this too is a perception. This is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, etc. Okay, staying right there, he says, you reach the ending of the effluence, or, if not, then through this very Dhamma passion, this Dhamma delight, and through the total wasting away of the first of the five fetters, you're due to be reborn in the pure abodes, there to be totally unbound, never again to return from that world. Okay, what happens here is that you can experience the deathless and still have a passion for it and in having a passion for it that you're identif you're creating a sense of self around it. This is why the Buddha has that teaching that all phenomena are not self. Even when you experience the deathless you have to remind yourself, okay, this too is not self. That, that way you'd attain full awakening. There's a lot in that passage. As I said, it's, you're, it's, the Buddha here is describing several phases. One is getting you into the concentration. Secondly, applying these perceptions, what, then learning how to perceive that state of concentration in terms of 
form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. For example, with the first for the first jhana, the form here would be the form of the breath. The feeling would be the feelings of pleasure and rapture that arise from the concentration. The perception would be the mental label that keeps you with the breath. The fabrications would be the directed thought and evaluation. Along with the feelings and perceptions. And then consciousness would be what is aware of all these things happening. So you learn to analyze your state of concentration into the five aggregates. And once you see it as aggregates, then you apply these perceptions of stressful, inconstant disease, etc. By applying those perceptions, you develop a sense of dispassion for the state of jhana and incline your mind to something that's totally unfabricated. You say, enough of these fabrications, I want something unfabricated. And that's just staying right there. That's the point where you don't intend anything any further. That's how you reach the ending of the effluence or an experience of the deathless, which has an element of Dharma passion or Dharma delight. So to get past that Dharma passion, Dharma delight, you have to apply the perception that not only are fabricated things not self, all phenomena are not self. Any questions? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm looking for my glasses. In my lap. <laughs> why? Why formless dhyanas uh, are not uh, uh, mentioned here? Like. Okay. All the formless ones, except for. state of neither perception or non-perception or the cessation of feeling and perception. Because when you're in those states, you cannot analyze them. You have to come out. So it's not helpful on the path? Well, it can be. I mean, you can get into that state, and as you pull out of that state, then you can analyze it. But here it's, he's mentioning only the ones that you can analyze while you're actually in the state. In other cases, in the case of Sarabhuta, you know, he, he had to wait until he got out of that state before he could analyze it. So that means uh, it becomes a form, uh, Rupa Dhyana, when it comes out of? Okay, you, while you're in the Rupa Jhana, you can analyze it, and while you're in the first three Arupa Jhanas, you can analyze those. So in, in the Buddha's description of his own enlightenment, he talks about the three knowledges, mm -hmm. um, you know, the first two, his, his own lives, and then the rebirth of beings. Um, that's not in here. So it, he's kind of giving like a different advice to reach the deathless um, than the way he mm -hmm. did it. Well, you have to imagine, remember, when he was doing this, he didn't have any guide. So you know, the first question that came to his mind first, okay, is this my only lifetime or is, you know, have there been lifetimes before this? He wanted to pursue that for himself first. And then once he'd answered that to a satisfaction that yes, there had been previous lifetimes, then the next question was, does it happen just to me or does it happen to everybody? And it's when he saw that it happened to everybody, that was when he got his first clue as to why it happens. It's through intentions. And so then the next question is, okay, what do I do with this knowledge? And there had been people before him who had gotten to that point in their knowledge and they said, hey, I can set myself up as a teacher now. But the Buddha said, no, that's not the most skillful use of that knowledge. The most skillful use is to 
look into your intentions in the present moment to see is it possible to stop intending in the present moment. And that's why he started looking at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths and came, came, came to his awakening. Now he's saying the basic issue that's facing everybody here is not those first two knowledges, it's the last one that's the important one. Because even with those first two knowledges, he couldn't guarantee the content of the knowledge. But it was only after he'd applied the lessons he'd learned from that, okay, this is, these are useful knowledges to have. But we don't have to go through and sort of reinvent the wheel for ourselves every time we practice. You can incline your mind to the deathless, and you know, that's enough. And there, I, know, I know some people who after, you know, had no psychic powers prior to awakening, but they did have them after awakening. And there's the opposite. People who have psychic powers but no awakening, those ones are dangerous. You know. <laughs> so he, you know, he, he points you to the safest place. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, clarify on top page 15, the paragraph. Mm -hmm. um, it talks about turning away mm -hmm. uh, the mind from these phenomena. Mm -hmm. um, I understand turning away from perceptions, fabrications, but also says from consciousness mm -hmm. as well. That threw me off a little bit. Consciousness, sensory consciousness. Okay. So don't turn away from the events that are leading up to stress, but turn away from the perceptions, fabrications. Well, remember, we talked earlier about how consciousness itself is a fabricated phenomenon, okay. or normal fabrication. I mean, there, there is a consciousness that is unfabricated. Otherwise, this would be spiritual suicide. Okay. okay. So don't turn away from the events that are going on around us. You basically, you turn away, you, you've got to turn away your um, attachment to everything at that point. With that in mind, how possible is it to achieve these states without going off into seclusion, like staying in the busy world you live in? It's hard, yeah. but it's not impossible. Okay. Well, the important thing is that you're, you know, you practice every day, and this becomes the center of your life. And particularly if you're, you know, if you've got a job, you've got a family, you also have to have your own private space where you can basically. Um, put up a resistance to the values of the society around you? Because if you carry their values into your practice, they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, you're being selfish here, you're not looking after your family, you're not doing, you know, you're not becoming, you know, fulfilling your potential as a human being or whatever, you know, the, the messages are that you're getting from the society. This is why Dharma talks are a good thing to listen to. And also being around people who have an alternative set of values. Because my teacher had some students who I thought were quite, you know, far, far along in the path. And they were meditating in Bangkok. You know. I mean, it's bad enough here in, in Redwood, Redwood City, but Bangkok is a million times worse, you know, just in terms of distractions and craziness going on. Um, the one advantage that they did have over there, of course, is that you know, built into Thai society is a respect for the Dharma, which we certainly don't have built into our culture here. So you need that countervailing influence. But even over there, I mean, he had my, student, my teacher had a lot of students whose parents said, you know, they didn't want their kids meditating because they were afraid the kids would, you know, sort of go off and not work, <laughs> not have kids. And so there was, you know, there was, there were countervailing pressures even over there, which is why it's good to hang around people who have the values that are, fall in line with this.
So just just to clarify that this the conception of or the uh, sort of the awakening that that you're teaching is that um, that one gains sort of the access like what it means to be become enlightened is that you uh, to be fully enlightened is to have sort of instant or very close access to the deathless mm-hmm. so that's the nature of say he's enlightened it doesn't necessarily mean that this person is dwelling always in this nibbanic state no matter what they're doing for a stream enter it would be having had the experience and then having returned from it and the same for a non-returner having had the experience returned from the arhat seems to have contact with it this is just what I'm assuming because I'm not an arhat okay but um some of the teachers in the Thai forest tradition that I really do respect in that regard say, you know, they, they can touch at any time. But up, up prior to that, it's going to be kind of an experience you come back from and say, okay, that taught me some lessons about what it means not to fabricate. Because, you know, the point I made earlier today is at the very beginning, which is that the Buddha's analysis of how we ordinarily engage in our senses is through, you know, prior fabrication. That's what the mind is going out there and shaping its experience. And this is a way of taking apart that tendency to go out and shape your experience. You try to shape it in as skillful way as possible and so that you know you, you really raise your the discriminating your discriminating palate, let's put it that way. Until the point you say, Okay, nothing else can satisfy me nearly as much as this the state of concentration. And then you say, Well, even this is not good enough because even this is fabricated. What if I could find something unfabricated? At that point, the mind is, is, is in a position where it can actually taste the unfabricated. Mm-hmm. And anything I say for the rest of the afternoon is going to be dressing. <laughs> okay. Um, the remaining passages have to deal with a few other cleaning up a few other issues. One is the whole topic of non-fashioning. As I said earlier, that that very last phase of mindfulness practice, when you're just holding in mind the fact there is a body or there are feelings or there is a mind for the sake of remembrance, okay, you're getting close to what the Buddha calls non-fashioning. There are six rewards for and establish the perception of not-self with, with regard to all phenomena without exception. Which six? I won't be fashioned in connection with any world. In other words, you're not going to be creating any sense of self, any sense of becoming with regard to any world. My eye-making will be stopped. My mind-making will be stopped. I'll be endowed with uncommon knowledge. I'll become one who sees, rightly sees cause along with causally originated phenomena. Okay, now what's, what's the advantage here of non-fashioning? Passage 33 gives you one. There is the case where a monk is virtuous, but not fashioned of virtue. In other words, you don't create a sense of who you are around your virtues. This is what it means to go beyond attachment to, to, to precepts and practices, or beyond attachment to virtues or habits and practices. Because you will be coming to the point you discern as it comes to be the awareness release and discernment release 
where even skillful habits cease without trace. Okay, there's something that goes beyond the fabrication even of skillful habits. And so from that point on, you don't fashion your sense of who you are even around good things. Passage 34 talks about different levels of equanimity. I threw this one in here because there are people out there teaching you that equanimity is nirvana. Um, the Buddha never said that. He talks about different levels of equanimity. First is the equanimity dependent on multiplicity, which is equanimity with regard to forms, sounds, smells, taste, tactile sensations. In other words, you just make up your mind that you're going to stay equanimous no matter what you see or hear or smell or think or taste. Okay. The equanimity coming from signalness depends on, and here they're talking about the states of the formless jhanas. Now he says you try to develop the equanimity of singleness so you don't have to depend on the equanimity of multiplicity. In other words, to keep the mind equanimous, you don't have to depend simply on the will to stay equanimous. You've got something higher than that. Then on the next page, though, he says, by depending and relying on non-fashioning, you abandon even the singleness dependent, uh, the equanimity dependent on singleness. So again, this, there is this activity, that, again, the fabrication that goes into creating attachments can even happen to equanimity. So the non-fashioning here is what transcends equanimity, goes beyond it. You're not creating a sense of self around it, and you're not creating a sense of becoming around even that equanimity. Passage 35 talks about a person of no integrity. I love this one. Anderson remains in the first jhana. He notices, I have gained the attainment of the first jhana, but these other monks have not gained the attainment of the first jhana. He exalts himself for the attainment of the first jhana and disparages others. This is the quality of a person of no integrity. However, a person of integrity notices the Blessed One has spoken of non-fashioning even with regard to the attainment of the first jhana. For by whatever means they construe it, it becomes otherwise from that. In other words, once you've started fashioning yourself around it, then you've slipped from the first jhana. Okay? So making non-fashioning your focal point, you neither exalt yourself for the attainment of the first jhana nor disparage others. This is the quality of a person of integrity. So again, this, this, this theme of non-fashioning becomes very important as you reach the end of the path. You begin to notice in what subtle ways you create a sense of self and it, you know, it's important in the beginning of the path to develop a skillful sense of self. That is a sense of competence, a sense of self-reliance, a sense of responsibility. So you actually can develop the skills that are required. But then there comes a point where you don't need that sense of self anymore. Self anymore. And so you can practice non-fashioning. And then finally, here's a di discussion between Ananda and the Buddha. First, I mentioned earlier the fact that it is possible to attain the dimension of nothingness without going into the four jhanas. This is the Buddha's example. Having gone to the wilderness, to the foot of a tree, to an empty dwelling, you consider this. This is empty of self or anything pertaining to self. And as you hold that perception in mind, your mind acquires confidence in that dimension. There being full confidence, you either attain the dimension of nothingness now or else are committed to discernment. With the break of the body after death, it's possible that your leading on consciousness will go to the dimension of nothingness. So this is one of the ways. You just hold on to that perception of not-self, and it can take you to the dimension of nothingness. 
Here's another perception of not-self. There's a case in under where a monk, having practice in this way, thinking it should not be and it should not occur to me, it will not be, it will not occur to me, what is what has come to be that I abandon. Okay, you make up your mind, you're going to abandon everything, right? And you attain equanimity. But then you relish that equanimity, welcome it, remain fastened to it. As you relish that equanimity, welcome it, remain fastened to it, your consciousness is dependent on it, clings to it. With clinging, you are not totally unbound. So it is possible, as you say, I'm just going to let go of everything, 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 you attain this very deep state of equanimity, but then you really like the equanimity. So you get stuck there. Now, this is not a bad place to be stuck, but it's still not awakening. So now to ask him, when clinging, where are you, cl where are you clinging? And the Buddha says, in the dimension of neither perception and non-perception. And then Nanda says, well then indeed, in clinging, that person clings to the supreme clinging. And the Buddha says, yes, that is the supreme clinging. There is, however, the case where having practice in this way, it should not be, it should not occur to me, it will not be, it will not occur to me, what is what has come to be that I abandon, then you attain, obtain equanimity. But you don't relish that equanimity, you don't welcome it, you don't remain fastened to it. As you don't remain fastened to it, you're not your consciousness is not dependent on it, does not cling to it, is not sustained by it. Without clinging or sustenance, the mind is totally unbound. So again, I threw, I threw this passage in here as a corrective to the idea that you sometimes hear that nirvana is equanimity. And the Buddha here is saying it's an attachment to equanimity is just the thing that could keep you from attaining full release. So, so again, you, you, we've come to the end of fabrication, which is what we started with. The idea that the Buddha wants us to see to the extent to which we fabricate our experience and so he takes us into very deep, subtle levels of experience so that we can see how even those things are fabricated and then learn how, learn how to develop a desire to go beyond them. And it's in doing that that we be can become totally free from fabrication to attain a state which is not fabricated. Now this requires developing lots of mindfulness and lots of concentration which act together to gain the insight. Are there any questions? I'm about ready to run out of steam. <laughs> I'm going on pure adrenaline right now, yes. Fabrications <laughs> the Okay, fabrications are your habit of creating your experience. And there's some social conditioning that goes into this, but there's also a lot of conditioning that's prior to social conditioning. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole fact—the whole fact that you have a body and that you function—that that's a process of fabrication. And uh, the Buddha would say the fact that you were born is a part of the mind's fabrication. There was a clinging that went for another, another birth. So this is a process that goes way back. And so as you're, as you're trying to dig into the process, you're going to get into a lot of areas of the mind that are you know, prior to your conditioning in this, time, in this lifetime. There's a question here.
you mentioned that uh, the fourth jhana, the, the boundary of the body disappeared. Is that somehow related to just kind of you get a, when you get used to it, some kind of you feel that maybe death, uh, real physical death, is just like that, no big deal. Is, is that somehow? How well, it helps. It helps. Um, I mean, especially getting into the formless jhanas, it really does take away your attachment to the body. Um, I'll close the day with a story. My teacher had a student, a woman who was in her 70s. She started meditating when she was 70 and kept on. She passed away when she was 80. Um, And one night she was sitting in meditation and this voice came to her and said, you're going to die tonight. And she thought to herself, well, if I'm going to die, I might as well die meditating. So she continued meditating. And she said she had this feeling that her body was beginning to fall apart. I mean, it was like she said it was like a house on fire. There was no place in the body where she could focus her awareness, where there wasn't this sense of turmoil. And she didn't know what to do. And suddenly she remembered, okay, well, there still is a sense of space. There's a dimension of space. So she focused on the dimension of space and stayed there. And then when she came out of that, her body had pretty much settled down. So she didn't die. So she, that's how she could report her experience. But... Um, but she came away with the lesson. Okay, when things really get bad in the body, that's one place you can go. Just go to that sense of space. Mm-hmm. Have you had enough of me today? <laughs> Any final questions? Okay, well, thank you for your attention. And Bhante, on behalf of the Sati Center, um, we want to thank you very much for coming up and giving us these teachings. We really value them. And please come back soon. Okay. <laughs>